listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I'm your host, Wayne McRoy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to talk about dim bones. What are dim bones? Of course, we're referring to the secret society known as the Skull and Bones Fraternity, and where exactly they come from, and you might be surprised to find out just how deep the roots really go, and where this all leads to, and more particularly, how it relates to the events of 9-11-2001. We're going to get into that tonight. Once again, we'll be reading from the book titled The Most Dangerous Book in the World, 9-11 as Mass Ritual by S.K. Bain. And we're going to look at Albert Pike's Palladian Rite and Dem Bones. Let's get right into it. So right out of the gate here, we have a quote. From Dr. Joseph Goebbels, the chief propagandist for the Nazi party, quote, If you tell a lie big enough and keep repeating it, people will eventually come to believe it. The lie can be maintained only for such time as the state can shield the people from the political, economic, and or military consequences of the lie. It thus becomes vitally important for the state to use all its power to repress dissent for the truth, is the mortal enemy of the lie, and thus, by extension, the truth is the greatest enemy of the state. End quote. And here's a second quote. This one, made by President George W. Bush in Greece, New York, on May 24, 2005, quote, See, in my line of work, you got to keep repeating things over and over and over again for the truth to sink in to kind of catapult the propaganda, end quote. What can we derive from these quotes, folks? Repetition is of fundamental importance to those who want to drive social policy. That's what we need to understand. If you tell a big enough lie and keep reinforcing the lie... People will believe it, and those who don't believe the lie are the enemies of the state. Do we not experience something like that in the modern era right now? Anybody who speaks dissent to the narrative presented by the state is immediately ostracized, discredited, or considered to be an enemy Somebody who's spreading disinformation, and the fact-checkers will get all on board with denouncing this person who says anything that's counter to the official narrative. That's what goes on across the board with a lot of this, and a lot of this, you'll see, ties back to the political class and the political class associated with the various secret society groups, the political wing of the occult brotherhoods. Let's read on here, and we'll see if we can connect some dots for people. This is not a whodunit, and we're not here to figure out how the conspiracy that generated the 9-11 occult script worked, or precisely who, with an exception or two, was involved. The world of conspiracy theory is a dark, murky place, and when it comes to the usual suspects in these sorts of affairs, of which 9-11 is just the grandest example thus far, but by no means the only one, 
It is easy to get mired down in a bubbling stew of unsubstantiated rumor, disinformation, hogwash, and BS. The New World Order, Illuminati, Freemasons, Council on Foreign Relations, there are plenty of books available on these and many related topics, and good luck to you if you decide to spend half your life trying to determine which authors and sources are credible and which are not. The truth may be out there, but it's encrusted in a layer of crud a mile thick. However, before moving on, we are going to take time to look at two possible suspects. The first entity, for what it appears to be but is not, and the second, because the organization in question and those affiliated with it fit the criminal profile, in this case, so well that it's almost comical. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. Just to point out that S.K. Bain, the author of this book, was wishing people good luck in trying to sort through all of the mixed information out there about these secret society groups and how they operate and who's involved. It is a muddled affair, for sure, when you're trying to sort through this. That's kind of what I'm here for. I'm here to try to sift through What's good information and what's bad information? That's something that I've kind of made my mission. I want to know. I want to know. I want to know who's involved, what they teach, what their modus operandi is, what their motivations are. I want to know. So I've been trying to back-engineer their programs and their plans here. And it's not an easy task, of course, as Mr. Bain here points out. There's a lot of garbage to wade through to find the valuable information. And that's my goal, is to fish out the valuable bits of information and pass it on to you and hope that somebody else out there can pick up the football where I left off with it and run further down the field with it. That's what I'm here for. I have the distinct honor of being able to stand on the shoulders of giants, those who have come before me doing this type of thing, and having laid down a foundation of information for those of us to carry on with. So that's my mission here. I want to continue moving the football further down the field in revealing just who and what's involved in these various occult operations in this world, what their motivations are, what their goals are, and what their methods are. And in so doing, I'm hoping that those of you out there who hear this can make some connections of your own, connect the dots on your own, figure out a few more things, and add more to the conversation here. Because the more that we can bring to the light of day, the better we can understand how the world around us truly operates, and the better prepared we can be for things to come, and maybe fight back a little from the nonsense that's been presented to us in this place. So that's the whole purpose for doing stuff like this. But let's get back to the reading here, because we're going to identify a portion of these occult fraternities that may have had some involvement in the events of 9-11, and if not direct involvement, they provided some of the core teachings behind the motivations for it, in no uncertain terms. So let's go ahead and read on. So we're talking about the Palladian Rite. Albert Pike, who lived from 1809 to 1891, 
was a prominent Freemason and author of Morals and Dogma of the Ancient and Accepted Scottish Rite of Freemasonry. Pike was elected Sovereign Grand Commander of the Scottish Rite's Southern Jurisdiction in 1859, a position he held for the remainder of his life. Pike was also reportedly the Grand Master of an organization known as the Order of the New and Reformed Palladian Rite, which has, was a resurrected version of an earlier group founded in Paris in the late 1700s called the Order of the Palladium or Palladium, however you want to pronounce it. I think the proper pronunciation is Palladium, so that's how I'll say it for the remainder of the reading here. According to legend, the order had been brought to Greece from Egypt by Pythagoras in the 5th century, and it was said that this cult of Satan was aligned with the Palladium of the Templars and introduced to the inner circle of the Masonic Lodges, going to pause for a moment here, folks. Many of these occult fraternities do like to hearken back to Pythagoras as one of their founding members or one of their important members through the ages. So no surprise here that the Palladium claims that Pythagoras brought this order to Greece from Egypt in the 5th century. And of course... It aligned with the Templars later on in the Masonic Lodges, introduced the Palladium to the Masonic Lodges. Of course, the Masonic Lodges like to trace their lineage back through the Templars as well, as we'll see here. But let's read on. Pike's Palladium Rite was said to be an international Luciferian alliance of key masons, and in her book, Hidden Secrets of the Eastern Star, Dr. Kathy Burns writes, quote, Knowing of Pike's admiration for Lucifer, we shouldn't be astonished to find out that Pike created a Palladium Rite, which was a secret rite that openly worshipped Lucifer and practiced blatant occultism. This rite was to be kept secret at all costs, and only a chosen few were selected. The Palladium, we are told, would be an international alliance of key masons. It would bring in the Grand Lodges, the Grand Orient, the 97 degrees of Memphis Misrium, the ancient and primitive rite, and the Scottish rite. The name Palladium was taken from a Masonic order founded in 1720, which died out, only to reemerge in Charleston under Pike. The Palladian Rite was to be a supreme universal rite of Masonry that would overarch all of the other rites and centralize all high Masonic bodies in the world under one head, that head being Lucifer, with Pike as his human agent. End quote. So as we can see here, the Palladium founded by Pike, there was an earlier group called the Palladium, and sometimes this makes it hard to research these things because they've existed under many different names throughout the course of time. But there's always been this inner circle within the inner circle. You could call this the Illuminati, of which Pike was alleged to be a member as well, in connection with guys like Mazzini, but that's neither here nor there. That's a topic for another evening, perhaps. But we see here that this whole Palladian rite was put together as 
an organization that openly worshipped Lucifer. Lucifer. Now, was this truly a religious type of an organization? And was this truly worship? Or was this in an allegorical sense? And they will always tell you and argue, it's all just allegory. They don't really believe in any such being. It's a symbol. And that's what they'll tell you. That's what they'll tell you. And that's what they always tell the profane, the outsiders, and of course those within the fraternity as well. They'll make that kind of a claim up until a certain level. And it's only at the highest most levels that you realize that there are spiritual powers at play. It's the nature of those powers that are at play that are the thing that causes so much confusion amongst, pe amongst people within and outside of these various rites that are performed in these occult fraternities. Let's continue reading, though. Next, this next portion here is called the H-word. As described, the Palladian rite certainly sounds like a logical suspect on which to pin the blame for the 9-11 global occult monstrosity. An ultra-powerful, ultra-secretive, okay, perhaps not so secretive given that you're reading about it here, Luciferian core of worldwide Freemasonry. Man, that fits the bill. That's it. Case closed. Get the torches and pitchforks. There's just one problem. Pike's Palladian Rite probably didn't even exist and was almost certainly a hoax perpetrated by one Leo Taxol, originally Marie-Joseph Gabriel Antoine Hogand Pages. Taxol, a French writer and journalist, wrote a series of pamphlets and books in the 1890s denouncing Freemasonry and charging their lodges with worshipping the devil, which, as it turned out, was only one of a series of hoaxes he'd concocted. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. Now this is what is alleged by the Freemasons, that this whole thing that Albert Pike founded a Palladian Rite was a hoax. Well, there's evidence that has come out since that time that suggests that the Palladian Rite was actually a very real thing that Pike did bring forward. And this is just more obfuscation. But let's continue on reading here and see what else this author here, S.K. Bain, can offer us about this. The ultimate truth of the matter may be more complicated than that, and just because Taxel's writings may have been a hoax doesn't mean there's not a Luciferian core at the heart of Freemasonry, but good luck proving it. Regardless, our next suspect, although it may be a familiar one to some, certainly warrants closer scrutiny in the light of what we've learned about the 9-11 occult framework. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. It is indeed absolutely provable that there is a Luciferian core at the heart of Freemasonry. So, that being the case, what he's saying here doesn't really apply as much as perhaps he thought it would. He said, good luck trying to prove it. Well, we have their own writings. Pike himself even admits to the being Lucifer, being the object of worship within Freemasonry. And that's not even in any one of his books or his writings associated with what 
is the Palladian Rite and how this came forward. So it has nothing to do with the hoaxed documents made by this Taxel back in the day. These are provable things, even still. So whether or not you place any validity into the whole Palladian Rite, which, by the way, like I said, there is some evidence that's come out that it was an actual thing, and it wasn't just based upon falsification by one guy. Uh, but that's that's a story for another day that we're not going to touch on tonight for time's sake. But let's continue here reading here. So we see that this core within Freemasonry may be a viable suspect for the things that happened on 9-11. But let's continue on. So the next portion here talks about Dem Bones. Here we go. The 9-11 occult mega-ritual was, by all appearances, the work of extremely powerful black magic satanic secret societies. And the president at that time, George W. Bush, is a publicly acknowledged member of Skull and Bones, a Yale undergraduate society that has been characterized by conspiracy theorists as, well, a black magic satanic secret society. What a coincidence. President Bush on Meet the Press, February 8th, 2004. The presenter there, Tim Russert, asks him a question or states to him, You were both in Skull and Bones, the Yale Secret Society. President Bush answers, It's so secret we can't talk about it. So Russert goes on and says, What does that mean for America? The conspiracy theorists are going to go wild. End quote. So it's an open secret of sorts. We know about this fraternity. We know several of the members of this fraternity. But they're not allowed to talk about what goes on there, of course, or what happened. Because it's one of those Freemasonic-type oaths that they take not to reveal the secrets of the fraternity. And, of course, I could tell you what they do in those rituals and rites, but I don't want to disgust you, so we won't do that. We'll read on. Skull and Bones has the characteristics of a death cult, writes John W. Whitehead of the Rutherford Institute in his 2004 article, The Secrets of Bush and Kerry, What Are They Hiding From Us?, in which he continues, quote, and most of the lore surrounding it centers on its death fixation. In fact, the entire secret society revolves around death-centered imagery. The initiates are told that they must die to the barbarian world and be born again in the company of the elect, or, as they call it, the order. End quote. Whitehead also tells us that some critics point to the fact that Skull and Bones is similar to other powerful secret societies, such as the Thule Society, which emerged in Germany in the early 20th century. Much like its modern counterpart Skull and Bones, the German Thule Society initiated its members with elaborate rituals that mimic those of black magic, replete with sexual practices, blood orgies, and communicating with spirits such as the devil. And in fact, both groups use identical symbols to identify their respective group, the nefarious skull with two crossed bones. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So we have a connection between the Thule Society, the Thule Society, and the Skull and Bones. They practice some of the same rituals. They use some of the same symbols. Not a coincidence. And also, I could tell you more about the various 
initiatory rites that they go through at this fraternity, but I won't do so. Maybe the author here will mention it, but I don't feel the need to go through that. You've probably heard it elsewhere anyway. Let's be honest, if you're listening to this, you're way beyond the 101 level of most of this stuff by now. Let's read on here. Skull and Bones is a regular feature in many conspiracy theories, some of which assert that the society plays a key role in a global cabal bent on world domination. It has been alleged, for example, that the society, informally referred to as Bones, and its members as Bonesmen, is a branch of the Illuminati and controls the Central Intelligence Agency, Going to pause for a moment here, folks. Oh, those wacky conspiracy theorists, right? What if I told you they're right? (laughs) Well, I don't know. Uh, I digress on that point. But certainly, this is a well-connected secret society group. Its members are carefully chosen. And, of course, and, of course, oftentimes, they have co-membership within other occult fraternities other than just the skull and bones many of them are freemasons themselves or some belong to some other occult secret society as well but let's go ahead and we'll continue reading here bonesmen are like a cross between forrest gump and z-leg writes washington post staff writer don oldenburg in a 2004 article Always in the picture at major historical crossroads, Bonesmen oversaw development of the atomic bomb and influenced the decision to use it on Japan. They managed the post-war occupation of Germany. They helped shape U.S. Cold War policies. They were policymakers during the Vietnam War. They have ties to the Council on Foreign Relations and the Trilateral Commission, two hot-button organizations for conspiracy theorists. Oldenburg continues saying that conspiracy theorists have a field day over the fact that Bonesmen were among the founders of the Central Intelligence Agency. They love to point out that statues of the Patriot spy Nathan Hale, Yale, 1773, stand on both of the university's campus and the CIA's headquarters in Langley. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. (laughs) So the Skull and Bones directly tied to the foundation of the CIA. And, of course, we have this celebration by the intelligence agencies themselves along with the university here at Yale. Let's continue on. John Whitehead adds further detail, quote, Known for its celebrity membership, Skull and Bones alumni include numerous power-wielding individuals such as former President William Howard Taft, Henry Luce, the founder of Time magazine, U.S. Supreme Court justices, mega-corporation founders and leaders, and such recent luminaries as former President George H.W. Bush, President George W. Bush, and Senator John Kerry, end quote. Multi-generational Bush Bonesmen. Pay attention, folks. This is where we have some more connections to the events of 9-11. Bush, both the junior and the senior, and of course, generations prior have been involved with this occult fraternity. 
Let's read on. George W. certainly wasn't the first or only member of the Bush family to join Skull and Bones. Writing in the May 2000 issue of The Atlantic magazine, Alexandra Robbins states, quote, Bush men have been Yale men and Bones men for generations. Prescott Bush, George W.'s grandfather, Yale, 17, 1917, was a legendary bonesman. He was a member of the band that stole for the society what became one of its most treasured artifacts, a skull that was said to be that of the Apache chief Geronimo. Prescott Bush, one of a great many bonesmen who went on to lives of power and renown, became a U.S. senator. George Herbert Walker Bush, George W.'s father, Yale, 1948, was also a bonesman, and he too made a conspicuous success of himself. Inside the temple on High Street hang paintings of some of Skull and Bones' more illustrious members. The painting of George Bush, the most recently installed, is five feet high. There were other Bush bonesmen. A proud line of them stretching from great-uncle George Herbert Walker Jr. to Uncle Jonathan Bush to cousins George Herbert Walker III and Ray Walker. So when George W. was tapped for Skull and Bones, at the end of his junior year, he too naturally became a bonesman. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. Prescott Bush was a key player in much of what's been done in the world today. A key player in making World War II a thing, whether you realize it or not. He was indeed one of the bankers responsible for funding Nazi Germany initially for what was to come. He was part of it. So at any rate, we have this family lineage involved in this occult fraternity for a long time. You'll find this with a lot of these occult fraternities. They have a propensity to gravitate towards these same type secret society groups. Let's read on here. The Smell of Sulfur. A proud line of Bush family bonesmen steeped in black magic ritual, author and publisher Chris Milligan in his definitive book, Fleshing Out Skull and Bones, asks, quote, Do we find in New Haven a multi-generational cult that uses conspiratorial tactics and ritualistic magic in its drama for control, that believes in the power of death to bring about change, a group of zeitgeist initiates believing that the ends justify the means, and using massive deaths to feed their necromancy? End quote. I'd say, yeah. Yeah, resounding yes as an answer to that question, but uh, that's just me. Let's read on. Maybe George W. Bush himself provided a partial answer of sorts to this question when he remarked in 2008, quote, I'll be long gone before some smart person ever figures out what happened inside this Oval Office, end quote. Or perhaps Venezuela's President Hugo Chavez was more on target than anyone realized in a 2006 address to the United Nations General Assembly when he made the following remark concerning President Bush's presence there the day before, and then made the sign of the cross, brought his hands together as if in prayer and glanced toward the ceiling. He said, quote, I won't read the Spanish, I'll spare you folks my butchering of the Spanish, I'll just read the English translation, quote, 
the devil is in the house. The devil was here yesterday in this very place. Smell the sulfur even now, end quote. And then it says in parentheses here, not that it matters, but the New York Times translated this. Yesterday, the devil came here, right here, right here, and it smells of sulfur still today, this table that I am now standing in front of, end quote. So the New York Times butchered the translation. Not a surprise there. Of course, they wouldn't want to really give you the accurate quote. Why would they want to do that? They are the newspaper of record, by the way. But we see here how the Skull and Bones fraternity has definitive ties not only to the intelligence agencies, but also to the presidential administration at the time of the 9-11 ritual that took place. This is not accidental either. And we're going to read on here. Because we're going to get more into the particulars of the scripting of the blueprint here for 9-11, the occult side of it, once again, and we'll start to draw some connections back here. So we see we have definitive connections to the skull and bones and maybe some more spurious connections to what's called the Palladian Rite, which is still a hotly debated topic as to whether it really existed when it was reformed by Albert Pike. But like I said, there is evidence there is evidence present that perhaps there was something there, although much of it has been pushed off as being a hoax. You see, plausible deniability built into everything. That's how these people operate. That's how the intelligence community operates as well. Where do you think they got their methodologies from, well, from these old secret societies, that's where. The old tricks are the best tricks. So you have more obfuscation here. Not only did the Palladian Rite, which allegedly re-arose under Albert Pike in the 1800s here, existed as a prior organization in the 1720s. Not only that, to obfuscate things, but also these claims that were made and allegedly verified that this Taxel guy was the one that made up the entire hoax. But, like I said, there has been some more evidence that brings it forward today, and that there is actually, in existence right now, a Palladian Rite. So whether or not Pike was the one who founded that or not is irrelevant. It certainly does exist now, today, again, now, whether this is in name only, and this was something that was leveraged on by those people who brought it forward today or not, remains to be seen, if I'm not mistaken, if memory serves me correctly. It is a type of a sub-organization under the OTO, if memory serves me. And that that's in the modern era here. But that's neither here nor there. Let's get back to the main focus here. The main focus the connection between 9-11, the events of 9-11, and, of course, the skull and bones. And the script, the scripting, the occult scripting for the 9-11 ritual. So let's read on the reconstructed script for the 9-11 occult mega-ritual. And there's a quote here, several quotes. We'll do the first. There's two quotes here. The first one is attributed to Michael Hoffman in his Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare. And he says, quote, 
I think we are farmed, Charles Fort said of humanity. It was Fort who also suggested that man deliberately invented the dogma of materialism in order to shield himself from the evidence of what was being done to him by means of psycho-spiritual warfare methods hyped by coincidence, symbolism, and ritual. And that, of course, Michael Hoffman, Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare. That is a brilliant observation. Certainly is. We are, we are under attack by a sort of psycho-spiritual warfare method that's been going on for the longest time, are we not? I think we could be adults here and admit that. That we've been victims of psychological warfare for a long time. The next quote here is attributed to James Shelby Downard with Michael A. Hoffman II from King Kill 33, and it is as follows, quote, Never allow anyone the luxury of assuming that because the dead and deadening scenery of the American city of dreadful night is so utterly devoid of mystery, so thoroughly flat-footed, sterile, and infantile, so burdened with the illusory gloss of baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, and Chevrolet, that it is somehow outside the psychosexual domain. The eternal pagan psychodrama is escalated under these modern conditions precisely because sorcery is not what 20th century man can accept as real, end quote. Now that's another brilliant observation here. And I would say that certainly holds true. People even still today... They can't seem to accept that sorcery is, in fact, a real thing. may not function in the ways they think of it, but it certainly is real. It's a type of manipulation of sorts. There's energetic principles that are being leveraged in certain ways to achieve certain goals. Think of it as causal engineering, if you want to be more technical with the terminology here. Instead of using a term that's loaded in the modern era, like sorcery or magic or any such thing, think of it strictly in terms of causal engineering. And if you do so, then you will be more open to the possibilities of its workings. So a couple brilliant observations in these quotes here, right out of the gate. Let's read on and see what we can garner from the book here. 2001, September 11th, a most auspicious date for a ritual undertaking. New Year's Day on the occult calendar, a date connected to the heliacal rising of the occultist's spiritual son, Sirius, the dog star. A date that also pays homage to the Egyptian lord of time, Thoth, through the name of the first month of the new year, Tout, highly fitting for a ceremony focused heavily on timing and time itself going to pause for a moment here, folks. A Ritual to the End of Time. There's a book written by Jay Widener out there that speaks of this. has to do with Falconelli and the mystery of the cathedrals. Speaking on this, that's an interesting read, too, and maybe we'll go through that on another day. We've gone through portions of it here before on past episodes. But that's another interesting tie-in here. A Monument to the End of Time, that's what it's called. But at any rate, let's continue on. 
On this date, imbued with occult meaning, winged mercurial messengers of death take to the skies, filled with sacrificial victims unknowingly awaiting their fate. Nineteen individuals believing themselves to be Islamic jihadists, evidence suggests that perhaps not all of them were true believers, soon to be martyrs, receiving their rewards in paradise, ready themselves to take control of four airliners with box cutters. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. And this is the official narrative that he is kind of half-heartedly stating here. Let's be honest about it, because <laughs> it's a ridiculous notion. And of course, he's pointing out what I've pointed out here in the past about these supposed extremist Islamic jihadists. They believed so heavily in their religion that they were at the strip club the night before. <laughs> and drinking heavily sounds like a very holy thing to do, doesn't it? Sounds like a very straight-laced Islamic believer, doesn't it? So, <laughs> you, you really have to question the mainstream narrative that they hand you here. But let's move on. It says, let the games begin. The ceremony officially commences as American Airlines Flight 11, AA-11, ritually marked, consecrated with the number of magic itself, slams into the North Tower of the World Trade Center, declaring the initiation of a magical operation. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. Be advised, Aleister Crowley has informed us that when you see the number of 11, you're seeing the casting of a spell, and that's what's being inferred here by S.K. Bain in this book. President and Bonesman George W. Bush arrives at Booker Elementary School in Sarasota, Florida, the state which had given him the presidency in 2000, and where his brother Jeb is governor, and where the 9-11 ringleader and hijacker pilot of American Airlines Flight 11, Mohammed Atta, had received part of his flight training. The commander-in-chief as high priest is in paradise, presiding over a black mass complete with little black children chanting out the words of the pet goat, about which Osama bin Laden will later crack jokes on Al Jazeera, saying that Bush was more occupied with the goat and its budding than the planes and their budding of the skyscrapers, invoking Baphomet even as United Airlines Flight 175 slams into the South Tower, an act designed to invoke Aleister Crowley's Lieber 175, the Book of Uniting, to a particular deity by devotion. They are stating their intentions and declaring their devotion not simply to Satan, but also to Crowley. As has been made evident, the entire day's proceedings constitute no less than an ode to Aleister Crowley, not to be confused with Ozzy Osbourne's literal ode to Crowley. Mr. Crowley. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, I, I know the song well, but that's not what he's talking about. Let's continue on. Thus, the two concrete and steel recreations of the fabled Pillars of Hermes, the god of commerce and trade, and also of thieves and robbers, stand mortally wounded as Hermes himself prepares to undertake his traditional role as psychopomp, escort of the souls of the dead to the underworld. In the tarot, the tower card has been known as the House of the Damned, and the twin towers have become enormous sacrificial altars. 
Very soon, the doorway between the two pillars will be opened, and the veil of Isis will be symbolically torn asunder as the towers come crashing to the ground, and a gateway to hell esoterically created. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So some people might say this is a bridge too far, but I assure you, this is absolutely the type of symbology that these dark occultists who run things in this world love to invoke. And it's not an accident. As we'll see here, it's not just a coincidence. These things are very much steered, contrived, controlled, and planned through various aspects in this way to fulfill the ritualistic nature of what's being invoked here. Let's read on. More public sorcery. In Arlington, Virginia, American Airlines Flight 77, piloted by a hijacker who, according to one flight instructor, couldn't fly at all, performs near-impossible aerial acrobatics in order to hit the west face of the Pentagon. This part of the building had been recently renovated and the Office of Naval Intelligence had just been moved in. The direct pinpoint strike on their office conveniently destroys records related to the investigation regarding $2.3 trillion in transactions, which Donald Rumsfeld had announced on September 10th, 2001, could not be accounted for. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. Of course, another massive coincidence, right? $2.3 trillion. Trillion. The Pentagon apparently is very bad at accounting. <laughs> and yet, our tax money keeps flowing in there, doesn't it? Even though time and time again they wind up missing trillions of dollars at a time that they cannot account for that goes, well, pretty much directly into black budget operations, let's be honest here. That's where the money goes, and of course they don't want to account for it. So, that's only a surface detail here. Let's get back to the reading. A massive version of an ancient and powerful occult symbol, the Pentagon sits on the 77th Meridian West and is 77 feet tall. What a coincidence, right? American Airlines 77 was marked with this same number, which, according to Aleister Crowley, is the number of magical power in perfection, and also conjures the 77 infernal names from Anton LaVey's Satanic Bible. And what is that in the sky? It's a bird. It's a plane. It's the doomsday plane, to be exact. Call sign Venus 77. Groundbreaking for the Pentagon began 60 years to the day prior to 9-11-2001. 60 years to the day prior to 9-11-2001. Isn't that another coincidence? Let's read on, which also happens to be former U.S. Solicitor General Ted Olson's birthday. Olson supposedly receives two cell phone calls that fateful morning from his third wife, Barbara, who was en route aboard American Airlines 77 to a taping of Poetically Incorrect, and who may also be one and the same as Olson's fourth wife, Lady Evelyn. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So allegedly this guy lost his wife on this flight. And of course it might be the same person who's now his fourth wife, or at the time of this writing was. Let's put it that way. 
What a coincidence. All these numbers that seem to align in this way. How coincidental. How many coincidences do you have to see before you understand that there's some type of planning at play that goes along with this? Now, who is in charge of this planning? Hard to say. Is it a human intelligence? I don't know. Often I wonder. I think there's a beyond human intelligence that steers, guides, and directs many of these things in these ways. Some type of a spiritual intelligence of sorts that guides these things. So not all human beings necessarily at play here, but there is human planning that goes into it as well. Uh, the result, of course, is what we have here. Let's read on. The final three acts. In Shanksville, Shank, Shanksville, get it, United Airlines Flight 93 is an airmail greeting to Thelemites around the world. And in this installment of the Flying Circus of Death, the plane performs a perfect disappearing act, leaving not much more than a wily coyote silhouette in the loose soil of an abandoned strip coal mine. The investigation is overseen by one Bill Crowley from the Pittsburgh office of the FBI, and the initial design for the Flight 93 Memorial is the crescent of or Im, sorry, excuse me, the crescent of embrace, shaped as an Islamic crescent, crescent creates such an uproar that it is finally changed. A less commonly known aspect of the mega ritual involves Korean Airlines Flight 85 with the number 85 invoking both Thoth and the Tower Tarot, as well as conveying this means war, which of course 9-11 did. Flight 85 was directed to land in Whitehorse, Yukon, and Whitehorse, as Ozzy Osbourne could tell you and did in his 1980 song Mr. Crowley, is slang for heroin, to which Aleister Crowley was painfully addicted. And speaking of Crowley, yet again, one Tim Crowley, air traffic controller, was on duty in the control tower on the morning of September 11, 2001, at the Whitehorse International Airport. Rounding out the mega-ritual proper, the closing of the curtain, one might say, was the dramatic late-in-the-day collapse of Solomon's Temple, otherwise known as the trapezoidal-shaped 47-story World Trade Center Building 7, a massive three-dimensional reference to the 47th problem of Euclid, sacred to Freemasons, home to Rudy G's Skybox Bunker, Let's have a couple of minutes or years of silence while Larry Pullet Silverstein tries to come up with a plausible excuse for using controlled demolition terminology. And last but not least, we bid adieu to Anton LaVey and his order of the trapezoid. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So two airplanes knocked down three buildings. One of the buildings was the 47-story World Trade Center Building 7, which was actually a giant trapezoid shape. Interesting, isn't it? All these coincidences, of course, the 47th problem of Euclid is something well known within Freemasonry. Something very, very substantial to them. So more symbolism at play here, and of course you have multiple Crowleys involved in the whole event, as shown here. Let's read on. The next section here says some serious black magic. And of course, serious spelled S-I-R-I-U-S, referring to the star. Serious. 
If all of this strikes you as some sort of evil magic, you're on the right track, as 9 is almost universally recognized as a number of evil, and the number 11 is, well, you know, yielding 9-11 as a mathematical sigil for evil magic. And no, it's not coincidence that in the U.S. the universal number for emergency services is 911. The diametrically opposed meanings are intended to create psychic distress. It's all part of the psychological warfare programming for 9-11. Astrologically, the Lords of Death and Hades, Saturn and Pluto, stand watch over 9-11, as does the Statue of Lucifer, slash Liberty, in a much more literal fashion. References to the Masonic Blazing Star and Crowley's Silver Star, or Argentium Astrum, the Silver Star being Sirius, abound, invoking, in particular, the role of this star as the abode of Lucifer. Sirius was also the name of the only police search-and-rescue dog killed on 9-11, who died during the collapse of one of the towers, which, incidentally, were literally wrapped in massive steel tridents, marking them as satanic mega-altars. The towers were, at the time, the key features in a broader occult ceremonial complex, complete with a gigantic replica of the monolith from 2001 and other massive occult symbols on the rooftops of the World Financial Center buildings. So the conclusion here we can reach through this. As an overview of the overview, then, Bush, the high priest, sits in paradise on New Year's Day, overseeing a global satanic mega-ritual which features winged messengers of death as a tribute to the prince of the power of the air. These flying harbingers of doom deliver their payloads of human sacrifices to their mega-talisman targets, invoking all sorts of astral hell in the process. The number of magic is everywhere, including an 11-year countdown to 9-11, and the entire mega-ritual takes place in plain sight. Two final 11s and the question of time. So we have here next a quote from President George H.W. Bush during a tour of Auschwitz in 1989, and he says, quote, Boy, they were big on crematoriums, weren't they? End quote. Given the breadth and depth of the occult script underlying 9-11, and the amount of time, energy, and resources that it took to pull the entire production off, the question logically comes to mind, my god, just how old is the 9-11 conspiracy? How far back does it extend? And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. It goes back probably way further than we might suspect. But we're going to trace back... the planning here quite a little while a 30 year old conspiracy former US senator and 911 commissioner commission member Bob Carey has stated in an online interview that 911 is a 30 year old conspiracy and here's the quote here so Kerry says, the problem is it's a 30-year-old conspiracy. The interviewer says, no, I'm talking about 9-11. And then Kerry says, that's what I'm talking about. And that's the end of that little snippet here. So apparently this Bob Kerry guy was aware of something. Let's read on. And although that notion may come as a surprise to some, hopefully not after reading this material... 
Carrie may actually be off only on a, by a millennia or two. <laughs> Michael Hoffman informs us that the process of hermetic cryptocracy is not stagnant. It is engaged in a remarkable project set into motion millennia ago, an operation which has accomplished most, if not all, of its chief goals with masterful dispatch. Synchromystic blogger Mark LeClaire expands on this point, writing, quote, Any open-minded me meditation upon September 11, 2001, floods the mind with at first incomprehensible riddles. The brave seek answers and begin to connect the dots. A shape begins to appear. The seeker can stop with a complete hypothesis. Evil men, shadow men, bankers and oil men, a secret one-world power. Some seekers go deeper into the woods. Satanic goofball cultists and their midnight rituals. Nazi connections. The Fourth Reich steps out from behind the American flag. Not satisfied, a few scrabble onward. An at least rudimentary knowledge of occult technology is a must-have. Occult science is that of metaphor, and the big truth of 9-11 is that it is a hierophantic event planned for 2,000 years by the priests of On and Tibet, and altogether inevitable. Beyond this third degree, aspirants court the abyss itself, gaze into the yawning yaw of Yahweh, and cry out, more light, end quote. Whether the truth is a conspiracy that's decades old, or centuries old, or millennia old, the reality is one that blows to smithereens the notion of 9-11 being merely an inside job by the Bush administration. The involvement of members of the administration seems a foregone conclusion, but the weight of the evidence doesn't support the idea that they were the masterminds, not by a long shot. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. Not by a long shot. These people were not masterminds. They may have had some involvement in the ritualistic nature of these things, or may have understood what they were seeing happening, but they knew. They know. Beyond a shadow of a doubt that there was a massive occult ritual going down here, that this had been many, many years in the planning, in the making. This was a massive thing. This was transformative. This changed the zeitgeist in a way that up until that time hadn't truly been done prior. There were some events prior that had changed the zeitgeist in many ways, massive ways. But this one in the modern era was the big deal. This was the ushering in of the new millennia. The ushering in of the new age, the age of Horus, the crowned and conquering child. This is what the intention was behind it. And of course, a short 19 years later, they doubled down and tried to initiate us again into this new age. Because I don't think it was going in the direction they wanted. So they had to change it up again in 2020 with the onset of this whole scamdemic situation. And I discuss this idea in my book, The Demic of Pan, Breaking the Natural Order, because I think what they attempted to do in 2020 was switch up what the new age is supposed to look like or what it will look like. Because I think it was shaking out differently than what they had anticipated initially. 
when they set off these things in 2001. So, of course, 19 years later, a full Masonic, a Matonic cycle, excuse me, Matonic cycle later, they decided to reset the game board. It's the Great Reset, as has been discussed here. But what are they trying to do? They're trying to reset the age. They're trying to skip through the age of Aquarius, the energetic principles associated with the age of Aquarius, and jump ahead straight to the energetic principles of the age of Capricorn, because those are more grounding. Those are more based in materiality than what the principles of Aquarius are. So I think that's what the attempt was. I think they realized that performing this mega ritual that was 9-11 was invoking some of these energies into existence here and jump-starting the onset of this new age, which according to the natural cycles of time should be the age of Aquarius and of which they had been preparing for a long time. But once they realized that, hey... Massive spiritual awakening is not going to allow us to maintain our positions of power and prominence in this world. They had to do something to keep their grasp on power. So I think that's what the attempt was with the whole COVID narrative that came 19 years later. They thought it's still in the early part of the new age. Maybe we could shift this whole thing a little further down the line and leverage these archetypal energies in ways that will better benefit us. Us meaning those within the positions of power today, those dark occultists at the top of the power structure that run things. Because I think what has happened is 9-11 was a wake-up call for a lot of people. And it heavily, heavily advanced this notion of a spiritual awakening it kind of gave it a kickstart people began to see things differently in the next 11 years leading up to 2012 and they recognized something something's wrong something's wrong in the world there's something spiritual here that we've been missing there's something more behind all of this and over that course of time, I think the power structure began to realize that maybe they made a massive mistake by trying to kickstart or jumpstart this new age through this mega ritual. And what indeed was happening was people were awakening, awakening spiritually more than they had anticipated by this, rather than being bound in the chains of fear and materialism as much as they had intended and so they panicked and they had to double down and try to kickstart some different type of archetype or energy into the zeitgeist and i'm pretty sure that's what has gone on here now this is my own conjecture i can't absolutely prove this but i have put down in book form some of the evidence suggesting that this may be the case and that that what the whole scamdemic situation what it was really about was about these occult archetypes being leveraged to bring the age of capricorn the energies of the age of capricorn into being here to replace the aquarian energies 
Now, this might be a bridge too far for some people, and if you're listening to this and you think that's a bridge too far, meditate on it a little bit, think about it, read on it, and understand that even if you think it's total nonsense, what you need to really wrap your head around is that there are people in positions of power in this world that very much do believe in these principles and these energies, and the things they do to act upon their beliefs will affect all of us, and this is no different. So I'm trying to just give you a basic frame of reference as to why these people do the things they do, what's their motivation, and the how. Because we hear so much, well, who are they? Who are they? Well, we could loosely define who they are, but know that behind the scenes, at the topmost levels of the power structure, there are dark occultists behind the veil that operate things. And we see some of the public faces of who we would call the quote-unquote elite, but that's not really who's steering and guiding things. The power behind the curtain is. And what I'm trying to do is demonstrate to you what motivates them. What are their beliefs that we can find by reading through their own words, finding what motivates them, what are their motivations, what are their goals, why do they do the things they do, and what tools do they use to get there? How do they do this? That's what I've been spending a great deal of time trying to break down. So if we can understand how they're doing it and what they're doing exactly, we can begin to counter that. And I think we need to. Because they've weaponized everything. They've weaponized long ago these occult principles that they keep hidden within the secret society groups, hidden within the occult fraternities, from the masses. They call you the profane. You're not worthy to know this. It's only through years of study and dedication into the initiatory processes of these various groups that you can maybe begin to acquire some of these secrets. Unless, of course, you can access their materials freely without their knowledge now. Many of these things were hidden away for centuries within the secret schools. But now... Thanks to the tool that we have that is called the Internet, many of these things are right at the touch of a button where you can find them in the public domain now. This, I think, was one of the great many surprises that has come about in this time period since the advent of 9-11 that surprised the powers that be that shouldn't be in this world. This information got leaked out there through the Internet, and now a schmuck like me can access it and read it and reverse engineer their entire belief system, their methodologies, the things they do, why they do the things they do, and how they do the things they do. And this is a hugely problematic thing for these people. There's a reason they've implemented secrecy for as long as they have. They don't want people to know how they operate and how they do these things. They don't want people to know the secrets of the ages, as they like to call them. They don't want people to know how the car operates under the hood. They like to keep that air of mystery about it. That's why they refer to them as mystery schools. But, at any rate... I think it's imperative that we know, that we learn how they operate, the things they do, and trust our intuitions in many regards to these things, because we're all kind of wired to be able to see it. 
It's just a matter of deprogramming your mind from what you think you know and what you think you've been taught as legit facts here. And that's where in some of this becomes problematic for people because we're taught strictly in terms of what we would call our modern day science or scientific method. And that is only one method of observation in the world in order to obtain knowledge about a thing. There are other methods that they don't tell people about. A lot of it has to do with your intuition. You just know in your gut something's not right when you look at something. And we've also been indoctrinated into thinking that some of our intuitions and our inklings about things are wrong and that we should not trust our senses in order to identify things as what they are, what they truly are. So they've ingrained these concepts in us and they've indoctrinated us to accept that much of the old school ways of thinking, the alchemical ways of thinking, the natural science ways of thinking are flawed somehow and they're backwards and silly. And things like astrology, well, that's just crazy talk. The stars have nothing to do with the world. They don't affect anything here. Really? Why don't you ask an astronomer if the stars have an effect here? In fact, they'll tell you you're made of star stuff, won't they? <laughs> Even your modern science, they, they, it's, it's all a type of gaslighting of sorts. They want you to think some of this older information is silly or nonsensical, that these people had it completely backwards. They didn't have a clue as to what they were talking about. They didn't understand how the world operated. Well, I think they were far more intelligent than we are, folks, the ancients. They knew more about how the world truly functions than we do. We've been taught backwards. We've been taught the inversion principle of things. We've been taught the destructive forms of science, not the constructive forms of science, those that work with nature. We're taught the sciences that oppose nature, work against nature, the antithesis of nature. This is how things function. It's on the inversion principle. And of course, these dark occultists, they love to use the inversion principle. They teach you the opposite of what they know to be true as truth. And they even mislead their own initiates and members of their fraternities because they're so obsessed with the notion of having power over others that they daresn't tell anybody what they know. And that's why secrecy has been adopted as one of the oldest mind control tools ever conceived. The old tricks are the best tricks. That's why secrecy is a thing. That's why they keep some of these notions hidden from you and I. But lo and behold, the tables have turned because now we live in a pseudo-information age. It's also the age of deception. And that, my friends, because the information that has come forward has been detrimental to the people in power who've entrenched themselves in the power structure in this world, these dark occultists. The coming forward of all the available information freely to people has been a massive roadblock for them to attaining and, re and retaining their power in this place. So therefore... Now they've come up with tools to muddle or muddy the waters. That's why we have generative AI, chat GPT. We have all of these deep fakes. 
makes it very difficult to find true information, doesn't it? We have everything being scanned into the machine, and although having all these old books and stuff scanned in has been hugely, hugely monumental in sharing some of this information and getting this information available in the hands of most people where it wasn't before, now the problem becomes, once everything's been digitized in this way, then it could be changed at the touch of a button and it could say something entirely new. And we won't have a record anymore of what was said in the past in that way. This will be the fulfillment of 1984 when they changed all the books. They changed all the information, and it was always that way. It's the rewriting of the words on the barnyard wall in Animal Farm. That's always been that way. It's always said that, even though they just changed it yesterday. But there's no record proving that it said anything different before. That's what happens with the digitization now. In the early days of the Internet, and even up until this point, it kind of got out of their control, these dark occultists. So things wound up turning up online that were challenging their power in this world. And they don't like that. So now they've begun to muddy the waters, as I said, and they've made it almost impossible to navigate through what's true and what's false with the advent of deep fakes, AI, the digital records. So even though it's been a blessing, it's also kind of a curse. And they're leveraging it in the way of a curse. This is the system that they need and they want to implement their massive panopticon control grid for the entire world, the cybernetic control grid, that will give them the achievement of their ultimate dream of becoming the gods of this place, their digital immortality, their physical immortality, and they're ruling over of everything. This is the absolute dominating factor, these types of technologies. The thing is, in the early days, they lost control of it, and a lot of information got out. And they're just trying to rectify that situation now. And I think they're a few years behind on it. That's why all the censorship and all the clampdown. But the human spirit will not be easily crushed or quelled, folks. And that's the problem that these dark occultists who run things are going to continue to have because humanity and life will find a way. Always does. That's part of the natural law, the natural order of things. So even though they want to impose their death-based ideals and ideologies upon humanity as a whole and ultimately destroy humanity and create what they call the post-human era, Although this is what they seek to do, humanity will not be easily quelled. The human spirit is not easily quelled. And we will find ways. Even if I have to sit here and read some of these books and go through a lot of this old material that I still have access to, until such time they cut off that access, I'll continue to do this just to try to give people a better idea of 
what this is that we're battling against. It's a spiritual battle at the core of all of it. And when you understand that, then you understand everything. It's spiritual warfare on the grandest scale. And where does it take place? In your mind. They know this. We know this. And now we know some of the tactics that they use to get things done so that they can influence your mind in ways that they want to. And we know how to counter that now by understanding what they are doing. You see, their attacks are not as effective when you realize that they are indeed attacks. And you're prepared for that. So when you're watching a television program, and there's a reason it's called a program, and you understand the symbolism displayed there, and you understand the intention behind it, and you understand the context, then it does not have the same effect on you as it would otherwise. It will not affect you subconsciously or unconsciously the way it would otherwise. When you recognize the symbol, and you know the context, and you know the intent, you know everything you need to know about that. This was intended as a programming tool. And when you recognize it consciously, just as that, then it doesn't affect you now. And that's the beauty of this. And that's why they don't want us to understand any of this. Because once you recognize the symbol or the pattern of symbols and know what the intention is behind it and what the context is to it, then it doesn't affect you. It's only when you're still in this semi-trance state that it could affect you on a massive level like it has by invoking certain emotions, emotional responses in you. Reactive, making you reactive. That's right where they want you. They want you to be reactive. They want you to react to things. They don't want you to think critically about things. Just react. That's the animal frame of mind. That's the materialist frame of mind. Problem, reaction, solution, the Hegelian dialectic. They don't want you to think or solve the problem on your own. They want you to simply react. That's part of the programming, folks. It's very, very subtle in many ways. But once you recognize the occult nature of it and the spiritual context attached to it, then you're better prepared to counter that. But I've gone off on enough of a side tangent here. I would like to continue reading here and finish this up. The 11-year countdown to 9-11. It should then come as no surprise that there would have been a countdown to 9-11, an 11-year countdown, as you might have guessed, which was initiated by none other than President George H.W. Bush in an address to a joint session of Congress on September 11, 1990, in which he referenced the New World Order, that 9-11 would be highly instrumental in bringing about, quote, We stand today at a unique and extraordinary moment. The crisis in the Persian Gulf, as grave as it is, also offers a rare opportunity to move toward an historic period of cooperation. Out of these troubled times, our fifth objective, a new world order, can emerge. A new era 
Freer from the threat of terror, stronger in the pursuit of justice, and more secure in the quest for peace, an era in which the nations of the world, east and west, north and south, can prosper and live in harmony. A hundred generations have searched for this elusive path to peace, while a thousand wars raged across the span of human endeavor. Today that new world is struggling to be born, a world quite different from the one we've known. End quote. I remember that speech, folks, very clearly. And he, mis- he most definitely, very clearly and succinctly said in no uncertain terms that out of this, these troubled times, their objective, a new world order can emerge. He talked about this quite a bit, and he's not the first or the last one to talk about a new world order. And of course, this was September 11th, 1990, exactly 11 years to the day before the events of 9-11-2001. George Sr. announces, and 11 years later to the day, George Jr. presides another episode of our All in the Family Bush special. An 11-year countdown to the end of the age... September 11, 2001, not only marked the culmination of one 11-year countdown, but also marked the initiation of a second 11-year countdown to one of the most significant dates on the occult calendar and one of the most auspicious dates in human history, and that would be December 21, 2012. Hugely important day, folks. Let's read on. This date marks the end of the current age and the beginning of a new age a perfect date on which to bring into full view their new world order. They have been constructing the foundations of this new order for decades, centuries, millennia, and 1221-2012 is the end of the age. There could be no better time than 2000 plus 13 to fully implement their new order of the ages. Thus, we go one level deeper still with the destruction of the pillars of Hermes, Thoth, and Thout first, out the first, invoking Thoth as the Lord of Time and initiating an 11-year countdown to the end of time. The end of time. So, what is being conveyed here, like I said, was the window of opportunity here for these dark occultists at the top of the power structure they tried to kickstart the New Age, which, according to many of their timelines, wasn't supposed to actually come into being until the year 2012, according to some of their occult belief structures. So they tried 11 years prior to kickstart this New Age and get a jump on it a little bit so that they can manipulate it and bring it into being. But in my estimation, it didn't quite work how they thought. And when that time did arrive, as it always does when the cycles of time change through the natural course of events, things began to happen like they were supposed to. And we see this type of spiritual awakening occurring right around the end of 2012. All of this, of course, aligns very heavily with the whole Mayan calendar situation as we see. They were on to something, perhaps. There was an energetic shift that year. 
But these dark cultists who run things attempted to leverage that and stifle that to a certain degree. And I don't think it went quite how they wanted. So, of course, they had to plan some other event to push back against these influxes of spiritual insights into the world here that are a naturally occurring thing according to the cycles of time. So they had to fight back against this, so they went ahead and instantiated a new measure, which I think translated, as I had stated earlier, as the events beginning in 2020, March 11th, 2020, with the wholesale announcement of pandemic, complete with all the pictures of the invisible enemy, the corona, the crowned and conquering child, the harbinger of the new age, which they wanted to be the age of Horus, understanding that there were the energetic principles of the age of Aquarius coming into being and manifesting, they wanted to try to quell that as much as possible and shift directions, shift the focus draw the focus back to materiality from the spiritual. And you see, air, air, the age of Aquarius, Aquarius is an air sign. I know this might be a, a, a bridge too far for some, and maybe you think of it as silly and nonsensical, but let's break it down to its core alchemical principles here. The age of Aquarius is an age of air. Air, always in the old alchemical sciences, represents spiritual ideas. Air is associated with spirit. Now, the age of Capricorn, which directly follows the age of Aquarius, is an age of earth. Earth is a material idea, a physical materialist idea. So what they decided to do is they had to rebind the minds of men, back in materiality or hyper-materialism. So in order to do that, they wanted to leverage the energetic principles associated with the age of Capricorn into this cycle of time. So that, in my estimation, is what they attempted to do when they decided to crown the conquering child, Horus, in the way that they did, and reinvest in the hyper-materialist paradigm. Bring people's minds back into that state of this physical world is the one and only thing there is, and that consciousness itself is just a type of a byproduct of the manifestation of the electrochemical activity of the brain and brainstem, and nothing more. So they try to equate all cause-and-effect relationships to physical, material-world things. Completely and utterly ignoring the spiritual side. That's what they've attempted to steer into being with this. And this was identified by Rudolf Steiner as the spirit of Ahriman, a major influence, which I see as an aspect of the spirit of Antichrist. It's the Antichrist system 
trying to lock mankind, the minds of men, consciousness of men, into this physical, material paradigm and trap us here in this paradigm. Certainly, that's what these dark occultists at the top of the power structure would like. Then they could be the gods of this place. And you'd be trapped here, subject to their will, with no hope. No hope of ascension into a higher spiritual form of sorts. No hope of reunification with the spirit of God with reconciliation with God, you'd be trapped here in the physical, subject to their will, much like an animal. You see, folks, they regard you as little more than an animal. They believe in many of their teachings that if you don't belong to or are initiated into one of their occult fraternities, you don't even have a soul. And therefore, you are just an intelligent animal, to be led around and used and misused and abused in any way they see fit. Any way they see fit to fulfill their will. Because you see, do as thou will is the whole of the law in this new age, the age of the crowned and conquering child, the age of Horus. The Capricorn idea. Not the Aquarian idea, which is more closely associated with Jesus. The age of man, Aquarius. Not the age of an animal. Man being a spiritual being, not an animal. And this is what has largely been leveraged with the advent of this corona pandemic. Pan, invoking the archetype of Pan. The great god Pan is dead. I go through this in my book, folks. I connect the dots for you there of the synchromystic metadata out there floating about in the ether or the zeitgeist or the collective unconscious. Pan. There's a dynamic at play. I call it the Pan-Christ dynamic. And this was before I understood the things that Rudolf Steiner wrote about. He calls these forces at play. He sees it as the Christ force, the Luciferian force, and the Aramonic force. All at odds with one another. I don't see... I don't see it exactly the same way Steiner did. But I see that, largely, we are describing the same things, the same energetic principles at play, in one way, shape, or form, or another. And certainly, I find the term aramonic the best way to describe what's been happening in this world. It's the directing of the human mind further into the hyper-materialist paradigm in thinking in terms of strictly the physical world that there are no spiritual worlds or no spiritual things at all associated with it. That's what the influence of Araman is all about. It's to trap people mentally 
in the physical plane, in the physical way of thinking, not acknowledging the spiritual in any way, shape, or form, not acknowledging the supernatural in any way, shape, or form, not even completely acknowledging the natural in any way, shape, or form, mostly just acknowledging the artificial paradigm, the artificial way of thinking, where everything is neatly molded into this one little box and set in this one little easily explainable and controllable box where everything is quantified to make it more easily controllable. Everything can be counted and numbered. Everything relates to a particle interaction at a fundamental level. The interaction of fundamental particles, that's how they try to explain all the happenings of this world, doesn't necessarily always apply. But this is what they want, and this is what they try to uh, trap our minds in, into this little box. That's the Aramonic influence at work, the Antichrist influence at work in this world. So when you recognize... It's a spiritual battle. It's been going on for a long time. A long, long time. And it's all being leveraged against us by this power structure in play. These spiritual warfares, these types of psychological operations as a form of spiritual warfare. And they are a death cult. They're obsessed with death-based ideas. They've instantiated these into our culture for a long, long time. That's why we have things like corporation or the talking dead. These kinds of things in our language. You see, they've been at it for a very long time, preparing the minds of men for this death-based culture. The zombie apocalypse is upon us, folks. <laughs> Just looks a little different than how you may have pictured. But, certainly, these allegories have been played against us by these people. And this is at the crux of everything going on. So, them bones, them bones represent a dead entity. And that's what is going on today. That's what this spirit of Antichrist is. It's a dead entity. A dead entity, given power in this place, that's what this panopticon control grid of the technocrats will be. A dead entity. No soul or animus to it. And those trapped in it, woe be to them. That's the bottom line. So dem bones, the skull and bones and their relationship to this, the death cult. All these death-based ideas bound up in it. That's what the transhumanist or post-human future looks like. The cyborg, devoid of any soul, will be a dead entity. Because, you see, when you take humanity completely out of the equation, which is the ultimate goal of the transhumanists, that's all you have left is a dead entity, an intelligence devoid of soul or spirit or animus. And that's all. That's the definition of artificial intelligence. It's the old golem or homunculus idea coming to fruition just in a techno-type way. 
That's what the transhumanist notion is. It is the fulfillment of their great work as they laid it out for us. That's what we're talking about. And those influences that have brought this about are obsessed with these death-based ideas. That's why they are a death cult. Of course, they always talk of death and rebirth and the natural cycles of things. But of course, that's a, a, a ruse. They are obsessed with the death ideas. And that's what they push and promote on humanity. So, folks, let's close it out there for tonight. So, we've said an awful lot. We've laid down a lot of information here. So, consider it. Keep it in mind, and don't let them affect your spirit. Life, and life more abundantly. That's what Jesus Christ has offered us, life and more abundantly. Do not fall into the trap of the death cult. Anyway, I want to thank you all for tuning in tonight. I appreciate each and every one of you. We'll catch you next time. Have a good night now. Come with me. Say hey.